let's pray, church. Father in heaven, we thank you that we can stand before you righteous because of what Jesus Christ has done, because of the shed blood of Christ. Lord, it is in Jesus Christ that our hope is placed. It is in Jesus Christ that we boast this morning. And Lord, we ask now that as we sit under the ministry of your word, that you would instruct us, that you would teach us, you would encourage us, you would mature us through your word for your glory, we pray in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated, church. Well, I would invite you uh, to turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. We're going to be looking this morning at Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. And as you turn there, I'd like to share a story. In the fall of 1980, there was a boxing fight that was planned. And this fight was different than other boxing fights. In fact, this fight has been in some ways immortalized in boxing history. In the 1970s and 1980s, there were four boxers that were often referred to as the Four Kings. And on this fight, in the fall of 1980, two of these boxers come face to face. One was named Sugar Ray Leonard, and the other was named Roberto Duran. Now, Sugar Ray Leonard is often regarded as one of the greatest boxers of all time. Even Muhammad Ali has publicly declared that there was no one that fought like Sugar Ray. But it wasn't that these great boxers were fighting together that made this fight so great. It wasn't how the fight went. It wasn't how the fight started. It's how the fight ended. What was billed as the super fight began. The bell rang. Round one went. Round two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Eight rounds of Sugar Ray Leonard pounding on Roberto Duran. And 30 ticks left on the bell before round eight would end. Roberto Duran ends the fight not by KO, not by any other means of fighting, but as Sugar Ray Leonard pummeled him, Roberto Durand looks to the left and begins to wave Sugar Ray Leonard off. And he says, no moss, no moss, no more, no more. Looking at the ref, no more, no moss. And I share this story with you today I think some of us in this room perhaps are fighting a similar fight as Roberto Duran. The fight's not in a boxing ring. The fight is the fight for holiness. If you are a child of God, you know God's word is clear that we're called to live godly lives and holy lives set apart to him. And we feel like we're fighting a losing battle that perhaps you know that you have a tendency and a struggle with the sin of anger and you're trying your best, but it's hard and you feel like you're fighting a losing fight and you just want to say no more. I can't do it. Or maybe it's lust. 
You've struggled with it for years and years and years, and you've been trying to fight that battle. But again, you feel like you're fighting a losing battle. No moss, no more. Maybe it's the fear of man. It controls you. It dominates your thoughts and your mind, and you're constantly thinking and evaluating what people are thinking about you, whether that's at home, whether that's at work, whether that's even here with the body of believers. And you're tired, and you feel like you're fighting that losing fight. Or maybe it's anxiety and worry. You know you're a worrier. You've always been a worrier. And you know that Christ commands us not to worry. And you're fighting that fight, and it's a losing fight. And you say, no mas, no more. J.C. Ryle, he said there are two known marks for the child of God. The first is inward peace. The second is inward warfare. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are in a war right now. And the Bible tells us we're in a war with three things. We're in a war with the world. We're in a war with the ruler of the world, Satan, our enemy. And with a war with ourselves, our flesh. And often our fighting tactics are regulations and rules and willpower. And we are losing this fight. Well, this morning we turn to Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. And the Apostle Paul is writing to a church that is struggling with the very same things we are. That there are a church that has let worldliness and legalism and false doctrine creep in. And they have lost their way about who Christ is. And they've lost their way about how to live the Christian life. That they're believing in false doctrine and they're following Christ in false ways. And the Apostle Paul begins to change tones in chapter 3. And he begins to talk about how the believer can live a holy life. So let's read Colossians chapter 3 verses 1 to 4. Follow along with me. It says this. It says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This is God's word. Now, if you're familiar with the book of Colossians, you know that the Apostle Paul, in chapters 1 and 2, expounds upon the supremacy and the sovereign reign of God, that Christ is supreme over all of creation, And these back chapters, chapters 3 and 4, highlight Christ's supremacy over the Christian. First two, Christ's supremacy over creation. Last two, Christ's supremacy over Christians. And he writes to a church that 
is trying to live a holy life in an ungodly way. If you look right before chapter 3 in verses 22 and 23, the Apostle Paul, he corrects this church. And he says this in verse 23. He says, These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and aestheticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. This church was trying to live a holy life in an ungodly way. And in chapter 3, Paul explains how Christians are to live holy lives. And our point, our main point out of our text is that I'm called to a holy life. And the question our text begins to answer is how? How do we do that? If we are Christians, we know we're called to be holy as Christ is holy. We know we're to live godly lives. How do we practically do that, though? We're going to see three vital things, vital steps that we need to take in order to live holy lives, fulfilling the call that Christ has placed on our life. And we see the first thing. We see the first thing in verse 1. Look with me there. It says, If then you have been raised with Christ. I'm called to holy living. And holy living begins with becoming a new man. Holy living begins with becoming a new man. That is what the Apostle Paul is saying. He says, if then you have been raised with Christ, or since you have been raised with Christ, only if you have been raised with Christ can you live this holy life. You can't do it any other way. You need to become a new creation. In in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, Paul, he outlines the state of every person. The spiritual state of every person in the spiritual state is dead. You were dead in your sins and trespasses, is what the Apostle Paul says. Before you knew Jesus Christ, if you're a child of God, before you knew Christ, you were dead in your sins and your trespasses. Perhaps you're in here and you haven't trusted in Christ. The state in which your soul is in, your spiritual state, as the Bible says, is that you are dead in your sins. Dead people can't live lives pleasing to God. In Ephesians chapter 2, it actually goes on to say that these dead people lived, and they formerly lived in the lusts of the flesh, following the course of this world, and following Satan. That this is the state in which people are in before they are raised in Christ. This is what you were raised out of Christian. In fact, as the Apostle Paul goes on in Ephesians chapter 2, he says this in verse 6, he says, Christ has raised us up that we have been raised in a very real sense. You are raised in Christ and you are dead to that previous way of life. You are dead to the world. You are dead to that former living in sin. And this is what we need to understand if we are going to begin to live holy lives, is holy living begins with becoming a new man. Are you a new man? Are you a new man? Are you a new creation? And if you are, you can begin to live a holy life to God. But we need to ask then, if I've been raised with Christ, and that's 
where I can begin to live a holy life. I'm enabled to live that holy life only once Jesus Christ has redeemed me and saved me. What are the steps now to to go about that? And that is where the Apostle Paul begins to share. You have to be raised in Christ before you can live this way. And this is what he says. He says in verse 1, he says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Seek the things that are above. And this is the second thing we are going to see out of our text this morning is that the new man, the new man needs new motives. If you're a new man in Jesus Christ, if you are a new you, the new you needs new motives. In fact, that uh, phrase of seeking the things above has the connotation of the deep desires of our heart the priorities, the motives, the desires. What is your heart desiring? And if we were to literally translate that, it's translated as keep seeking. It's present and it's continuous. This never ends. This never stops. Keeping, seeking after these things, the things that are above. And Paul specifically mentions one thing, One thing that we need to be seeking if we are going to live holy lives. Did you catch that? He says, seek the things that are above at the end of verse one where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. This is what the believer needs to be preoccupied with. To be preoccupied with the things that are above, with heaven, is to be preoccupied with the one who reigns there that your heart isn't just consumed with pleasing and thinking about heaven, but you're thinking about Jesus Christ who is on that throne, who reigns there at this very moment. That struggle that you have with sin, whatever that is, if you lose sight of heaven and you're not seeking the things of heaven, you're not aware of the rule of Jesus Christ, You are on a slippery slope to begin seeking the things of the earth. When you are aware of the reign of Christ in heaven, you are going to be able to seek the things above. You're going to have this eternal perspective. Some of us, we seek the things above, but we don't do it often. We don't do it enough. That as Paul writes this, It's not only a continuous action, it's a never-ending command and action. Yet some of us, we are struggling with our sin, we're fighting this losing battle, and I think part of it is because we are only seeking the things above between 9 and 10 a.m. on Sundays, or 11 and 12 a.m. on Sundays, or Tuesday nights at our small groups or Wednesday nights at our small groups. There are set times in the week where we specifically are seeking the things above, but as we go about our lives, we might leave here. We're not thinking about it. We're not having our heart and our motives set on Christ and his reign. And so we struggle. And our fight with sin is difficult and hard that is Christ on your heart and on your mind daily, hourly, every minute, 
As you're driving to work, are you thinking about and oriented towards Christ and his kingdom? As you're working at your desk, are you aware that there is a greater king and a greater kingdom in which you live? Or do you lose sight of that? Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be added to you. It's not that we don't think about anything else. Paul's not trying to be super spiritual and say, you need to just sit and think about heaven constantly. That's not what the Apostle Paul is saying. What he is saying, it's a matter of the priorities of your heart, the deepest desires of your heart. Think of a compass. Wherever you take that compass, it is always oriented north. And you can tell where you are because you know that it's pointing north. That is what the believer's life is to be like. Constantly oriented, constantly focused on heaven in the things that are above where Christ is seated. When temptation comes, think about these things. Seek these things. Perhaps some of us in here, we're actually thinking of it a phrase, and I've heard this phrase many times throughout my life. It's a, it's a fairly common phrase, and maybe you've heard it. A 19th century preacher, he said this. He said, we don't want to be so heavenly-minded that we're no earthly good. That person doesn't exist, though. In fact, what the Apostle Paul is getting at is that if we're going to be any earthly good at all, we need to be heavenly-focused, if we are going to live lives that please God, we need to have a heavenly focus. What are the deepest desires of your heart? When you're at work, when you're at home, do you have a heart that is oriented towards heaven and Christ? This is going to enable us to live lives that are pleasing and good and holy towards God. But we're probably asking, and you're probably thinking, okay, holy living begins with becoming a new man, and the new man needs new motives, but how do I actually cultivate these motives? What do I do? I know I need these motives. I know I need to live a holy life, but how? How do I do that? Well, the Apostle Paul, he tells us. He tells us. Look with me at the text again, verses 2. Do you see this? He says, set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. That the new motives flow out of this new mindset. That is the third thing we're going to see. That holy living begins with becoming a new man and the new man needs new motives and these new motives come from a new mindset. As Paul unpacks this, he, there's some parallelism here between seeking the things above and setting your mind on the things above, but they're also different as we've highlighted. One is the more heart-oriented desires and here we see it is the mind, the thought's life. What are you thinking these days? 
What do you think of during the day when you're at work? What do you think of when you're getting ready for bed or waking up or taking care of the kids? John Stott, a theologian in the 20th century, he said this about the battle for the Christian life. If someone asked you what the battle for the Christian life is, what would you say? This is what John Stott said. He said the battle for the Christian life is the battle for the Christian mind. Our minds, what we think about, the ideas we fill them with matters and influences us. As we fill our minds, it informs our affections and our desires and our hearts. And this command to set your minds on the things above is a literal command to think about these things. And let me highlight again, this is a present tense continuous action command. This never ends. This never stops. If we walk out of here and we stop setting our mind on these things, we will inevitably stumble and fall. Temptation will rule over us because we are not living and having minds as Christ has commanded us to. Uh, Psychologists have uh, coined the society and the age in which we live as the age of information. In fact, there's been a lot of studies about the creation of the internet and how that is so unique, and they've tried to compare it to any other creation Uh, that's happened in in history, and the only thing that they can compare it to is the printing press. When the printing press was created, there was mass, uh, mass information boom, but even then, that comparison falls short because we can't carry printing press around in our pockets, but we can carry phones. And psychologists have been studying the mind the last 20 years, and they have been estimating how many thoughts people have a day. And some psychologists estimate that people think 12,000 to 16,000 thoughts a day. Some even think 50,000 to 60,000 thoughts. That's, that's estimated. I don't think I've ever had that many thoughts. That's a lot of thinking. But psychologists are saying in this age of information, we are thinking about and filling our minds and having ideas at an extremely rapid rate. We live in the age of information. And I want to highlight out of here When Paul says, seek the things above, in verse 2, he says, set your mind on the things above, but he highlights something, what we are not to set our minds on, what we shouldn't be filling our minds on, what we shouldn't be thinking about. And this is what he says. Do you see this? He says, set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth. He's not saying we don't think about any earthly things that we don't think about our kids or think about the tasks we have at work. What he's getting at is the sinful, worldly things. And if we're honest with ourselves, many of us fill our minds with filthiness, despicable things, and it's hard. You can't turn the radio on without hearing something that just fills your mind with something you didn't need to think about. But I think the warning that we need to take here is that some of us willingly, willingly open our minds up to the earthly thinking. We watch movies and shows that celebrate debauchery and evil 
and sin. We fill our minds with these things. We watch TV shows that celebrate adultery and infidelity, and yet we wonder why we struggle with lust. We watch TV shows that celebrate and laugh at anger and hatred and murder, and yet we wonder why we struggle with those very things of anger and hatred. We need to not fill our minds with these things. But we need to ask ourselves, what are we to fill our minds with? We need to fill our minds with the things above, and we need to not set our mind on, on, on the things of this earth. But, but what are we supposed to fill our minds with then? The things that are above, okay. What are those things? Well, the Apostle Paul tells us. He gives us three things. Three things that we need to set our minds on. Look with me. Verse 2. It says, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died. That is the first thing that we see. That is the first thing that we need to set our minds on. Christian, you have died. We need to ask, what have we died from? Well, the Apostle Paul earlier in chapter 2, verse 20, says, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world. We've died to the world. We learn in Ephesians that we've died to the world, that we no longer live to those things. We need to think about this. Do you think about that? Do you set your mind on the reality that you have died to the powers of sin? You have died to the world. You have died to the ruler of this world. You no longer live that way. That's your old life. I read a book over Christmas break this past year called Atomic Habits by a man named James Clear. It's a really well-known, famous book, sold millions of copies, and I was really curious. I wanted to read it. And uh, he's studied habit building, how to uh, develop habits, how to maintain habits. He's really gotten into the science and the psychology of it. And there was one chapter where he talks about building habits and maintaining habits, whether that's healthy eating or exercise or reading or whatever habit you want to build. He uses these principles. And one of the principles he talks about is that say you're at a restaurant trying to, trying to live a healthy life, make healthy decisions, and you open up the menu, and there's all of these choices, and in your mind you're thinking, I need to pick the healthy option. I need to pick the healthy meal. And he says, you actually need to go deeper than that. If you want to see lasting change in your habits, You need to think about your identity. And he says that as you're opening that menu and making choices, what's going to help you develop and maintain habits is not thinking, I need to pick the healthy meal. I need to pick the healthy meal. You need to go deeper to the root and think, I'm a healthy person. Therefore, I make healthy decisions. And as much as James Clear is kind of talking about, you know, you need to impose this on your identity, inform your identity. What the Apostle Paul is saying here isn't wishful thinking. This is reality. This is very true of the Christian, that you have died. Sin has no power over you. You need to think about this. The Apostle Paul says in Romans, consider yourself dead to sin. Think about this, Christian. Think about this. That sin that has a hold on you that you struggle with, think about this. 
that you are dead to that sin. It has no power over you. In Christ, you have died to it. But we see a a second thing that we need to think about, that we need to set our mind on the things above, and one of those things is that I have died to this world. But he says a second thing. He says, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. The second thing we need to think about is not that j- just that we've died to sin, but that we have new life in Christ, that our life is in Christ. In fact, the Apostle Paul isn't using some, again, hypothetical spiritual terms. He is really saying that this is something that we have right now, eternal life in Jesus Christ. In fact, 1 John five twelve says, he that has the Son has life. And that he that has not the Son of God has not life. That you are made alive. There is life in you. You are no longer, as Ephesians 2 says, dead in your sins and trespasses. You, at this moment, are spiritually alive because of Christ. Your life is in Christ. Did you catch it there, though? He says this. He says, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. Hidden. This really is indicating two things. It indicates that it's secure. There is nobody, nothing that can take away your life in Christ. And the second thing is, though this is a reality, though you are alive in Christ, it is not fully realized. The world doesn't see it. But we need to think about this. That not only have we died to sin, but we are alive in Christ. And because we are alive in Christ, we are living for Christ. But he mentions a third thing, a final thing. Verse four, look with me. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So we've seen that I've died to this world. We see that my life is in Christ. And the third thing is that future glory is coming. Christians, set your mind on the fact that future glory is coming. You need to regularly think about that this is not all there is. In fact, today, tomorrow, and this week, it is going to be a very quick passing memory. Thinking upon this as we think upon the fact that future glory is coming, eternity with Christ, when we will be fully revealed in Christ, it will no longer be a hidden reality. It will be a revealed reality. We need to think about this because as we struggle with sin and we're reminded that this is just a a moment of temptation, I have eternity waiting for me. I'm going to be with Christ in his glory forever. Holy living begins with becoming a new man. And the new man needs new motives. And these new motives flow out of a new mindset. And this mindset sets itself upon these three very distinct realities that we need to remember every moment, every day. But we need to ask one more question. How? How do we set our minds on these things? Because we see that we're supposed to set our minds on these. How do I actually practically cultivate a mind that is set on these things on a daily basis? 
Well, the Apostle Paul answers that question. In fact, he answers it later on in chapter 3. And I'd invite you to turn with me to the end of chapter 3, verse 16. Colossians chapter 3, verse 16 gives us a glimpse on how practically we can fill our minds, set our minds on the things that are above. And he says this, he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. We see two things that we can practically do, that we are practically instructed to do to set our minds on these things, to let the word of Christ dwell on us richly and to sing songs. The word and worship. And notice that both of these things have a personal responsibility, but also a horizontal one in which we will be ministered from. Vertical and horizontal, and we see the first Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. There is an obligation, a personal calling each of us have to be in the word of God, to letting the word of Christ dwell in us richly. We will not triumph over sin if we do not know God's word. But notice there's the horizontal, the responsibility of others. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, that we have a responsibility to each other, to point each other to the word of God, to encourage one another with the word of God. And we see a second thing, worship, he says, he says this, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. As we sing, and our minds are engaged and we're thinking about the words and our mouth is engaged and we're telling our tongue to sing and to speak these truths. We're reminding ourselves that I'm, di- I'm dead to this world. I've died to sin. We're reminding ourselves of the truth. My life is in Christ. We're reminding ourselves future glory is coming. But there's also a horizontal aspect to that. That as we're singing this morning, I was standing here at the front and This was happening. I wasn't just singing. I was hearing other people sing. And as the saints in the church were singing, I was focusing my mind on these things, but I was also hearing others telling me in my ears these truths. And it was motivating me towards having my mind on the things above. Holy living begins with becoming a new man. And the new man needs new motives and the new motives flow out of this new mindset on these things. As we close today, I want to share a story. When I was in uh, Bible college, I had a professor. Uh, he was a, a former pastor and uh, many years in ministry and he shared a story with me that uh, I, it still sticks with me to this day on this very a topic of focusing on God's word, being filled with God's word, dwelling upon it and having it dwell in me. And he shared this story while he was in pastoral ministry. There was a woman, uh, she uh, got saved, praise the Lord. But this woman, though she was saved in Christ and came to faith in Christ, she had a lot of struggles. She had a lot of sin that still remained 
and it was hard, and it was difficult. She dealt with a host of issues, and he shared how in some ways it seemed very uh, heartbreaking to see this woman saved, but also to see how far she had to go, how much sin struggles remained in her life. And over the course of a couple months, he realized that this woman had really matured in Christ. That these sin struggles she had didn't seem very evident anymore. And in fact, he, he noticeably uh, saw a difference in her life that, that Christ had really matured her. And one Sunday, he, he pulls her aside and asks, what happens? Like, praise the Lord. Obviously, God has done a work in your life, but how? What happened? Explain to me. How, did, how has this happened? How, did, how has God worked? She began to explain that uh, she started to serve in their church's Awana ministry. Now, if you're familiar with Awana, I know uh, some of us are. Awana is a children's ministry that focuses on memory verses, having children memorize the Bible. And this woman uh, started to, to serve in children's ministry in Awana specifically, and she would listen to the, the children share their memory verses. She had to check to make sure that their memory verses were correct. And she shared that as she was hearing these memory verses, she decided, you know what, these, these grade three kids are learning the, the Bible and memorizing the Bible. I should, I should do this too. So she started to memorize the word, that she started to dwell upon God's word. And she shared that as she began to have God's word dwell in her, it so equipped her and helped her get to a place where she had overcome a lot of these sin struggles that she had. And I want to encourage us that we would not shortchange, we would not shove off or neglect the reading and the memorizing of God's word. That God's word is living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. And he shared this story with me to remind me and to call me and to, to help me commit to being a person that would love and know God's word. And I share this with you, that you would do the same. That godly thoughts will lead to godly living. Holy and heavenly thoughts will lead to holy living. So in your struggle with sin, would you commit to knowing God's word, to dwelling upon it and having it dwell upon you? Commit to setting your mind on the things above. Let's pray, church. Father in heaven, we give thanks, God, for your amazing grace. It is a miracle that any of us could be saved, that you would save anyone. And yet, Lord, you have shown yourself so gracious and merciful that you would deliver dead people to life, that you would take those who by nature are children of wrath and deserving of eternal punishment, and you would save us and you would deliver us, and you would redeem us, and you would make us alive to spend eternity with you. 
And God, we ask and pray specifically in our fight against sin that you would help us to be holy. Lord, we know what your word says. We know that it's clear. And Lord, we ask that we would follow the instruction of Colossians 3 and we would live out the calling to seek the things above, to set our minds on the things above so that we would live holy lives that please you and bring you much glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.